Welcome to the Circle of Film Podcast. I'm Ryan, and join me as we step into December's scavenger hunt on today's review episode. What's this? What's this? It's supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. What is this? A whole new world. What is this? Let's kick things off with a bit of a confession. I technically have not finished The Scavenger Hunt yet. Uh, I just watched, finished watching For Ellen, which was my 30th film out of 31 on the, on the docket this month. And I intend to watch The Nightmare Before Christmas later today, but I haven't seen it yet. And, I, I mean, I've seen it many, many, many times, but I haven't rewatched it yet for the scavenger hunt purposes. But because it is a rewatch, it is a film that I'm not going to include as part of the superlatives or top 10 uh, were it it to be included on them. And I I can say with undeniable certainty that uh, of the 10 superlatives... If I were to include Nightmare Before Christmas, it would easily uh, count and and be be the recipient of um, four of four of them, four of them, five of them, five of them, half half of the superlatives. Uh, especially, I mean, when you consider that you know you've got superlatives like worst film, biggest disappointment most forgettable, none of those apply, because it is an amazing movie. Uh, but So it would take pretty much all of the positive ones. It would not get biggest surprise, though. Uh, so, yeah. Anyway, so uh, forsaking Nightmare Before Christmas and removing it from the discussion, I have finally figured out who will receive the awards for this month. I have my top 10 in front of me, and I am ready to do this. Um, So, without any further ado, let us jump in to this month's top 10. Compared to last month, uh, the top 10 for this month starts at a much lower point. Uh, this was a much weaker batch of films. Uh, you know, you, there, you know, there were uh, quite a number of films. You know, some, too many films that, like, that I had just had to search for their ratings for just to figure out which one was the worst one because so many films received half a star on Letterboxd from me. And I think four films got a rating of less than 10, which is ridiculous but you know that's that's where we're at and I think this is a better representation of what a typical scavenger hunt batch looks like for me Uh, you know you've got one or two true standout films uh, and then a handful of really high quality stuff then about 75% of the films are 
like average to awful. You know, it's it's it is what it is. You know, I I don't I don't particularly pick films that I know are going to be or or think are going to be good. I pick films to help kind of fill out the spreadsheet in a way. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, let's see. There's also uh, if you remember going back to the uh, preview episode, five of these films were directed by Spielberg. Only two of his, or yeah, two of the f- five films that he directed make the top ten. So I'd say that that's decent, forty percent. Um, you know, considering that I'd seen the majority of his recognizable work already, I think that that's a very good number for him. Um, so uh, let's do this. Uh, number ten and number nine both got the same rating from me, a fifty-six but with a significantly, significantly lower Rotten Tomato score. Uh, number 10 is Four Rooms. Uh, this, is a, this is an anthology film directed in part by uh, Robert Rodriguez and Quentin Tarantino, starring primarily Tim Roth and featuring... Performances from a handful of people, Antonio Banderas, Madonna, Jennifer Beals, Marissa Tomei, Bruce Willis, Tarantino himself, Salma Hayek, uh, and, you know, a host of other people are, are also in it. And basically it entails a porter bellhop at a hotel who has to deal with four different situations, each directed by a different director. And, uh, you know, so to kind of break it down into each situation, you've got um, a group of witches who need the sperm of a man, and so one of them has to seduce uh, Tim Roth's character. There's a couple who ask him to check up on their children while they're out at dinner. There's... A married couple having a fight that he kind of gets dragged into. And then, I don't remember exactly what Tarantino's character was, but he joins him. Roth's character joins Tarantino's character in this, like, party type of venue in his suite. And some crazy ridiculousness ensues. Uh, Very bloody. Uh, as as you could expect from Tarantino. And so, like I said, I gave this a 56. I think the first two parts, which are the witches and the married couple fight, I think they're pretty bad. Uh, you know, they're not enjoyable. They're not particularly creative. They don't do much with the material. And I found Tim Roth's voice and demeanor very annoying for these two parts uh, so you know the film started out at a really low point for me but then we hit the third segment with the couple that has kids and that was the best segment you know that elevated everything immediately uh, back into kind of like the 40 high 40 low 40, low 50s range at that point and the reason I like it is because You've got this sort of uh, 
relationship between Roth and these two kids, and it's it's you know it's a kind of relationship that you've we, you've seen it before, where you know the adult tries to give the kids space, tries to give you know listen to them and do you know understand what they're saying and hear what they're saying and respond to what they're saying, but after they continuously deceive him in various ways, finally something real happens and he refuses to respond. Boy Who Cried Wolf, classic scenario, and it's a pretty hilarious scenario that actually happens, considering all the ones that didn't really happen. And the kind of crux and climax of this segment you know, Antonio Banderas plays the dad, and, you know, they return home in, like, the middle of just the most ridiculous sequence of events that could have possibly happened. And normally that feels like you see that in a movie, and, you know, someone walks in on a character right in the most absolutely compromising situation, and you just kind of think to yourself, like, oh, come on, man, like, really? Like, when does that really ever happen? The odds are astronomical, but it's a movie. Uh, but you don't you don't feel that with this, and I, and you know Rodriguez directed this segment, and he has just a, a really deft touch with this segment. So I, I really appreciate it. I didn't feel particularly uh, you know underwhelmed or frustrated by the intrusion at that point. So I, I quite enjoyed that. And then the final segment is Tarantino's, which um, I the build-up is less interesting than... The, the first half is, is fine, but the second half is pretty good. And like the, I think the dialogue kind of hits a new, new level, a new tier partway through it. Uh, once you kind of get... You kind of get Tim Roth kind of begrudgingly staying there. And once he's fully committed to being there, everything kind of shakes off the cobwebs and really stretches itself out and explores the space and the capacity for the conversation. And you've got Bruce Willis as himself, I think, kind of just like pacing and on the phone in like a far room uh, it just it's really strange and and interestingly set up and then the the climax it just you know you're building up to this moment and Tarantino's character convinces Ross character to do this thing and he's like no I'm not going to do it and he's like come on and he's like no I'm not going to do it and he's like I'm going to pay you this much money if you do it and he's like I'm not going to do it and he's like come on and he does it. He does the thing, which is shocking. And he just grabs the money and walks away while everyone behind him is just like astonished or in pain or laughing or whatever it is, whatever the response is. And it's just a great way to end it. But I do still think that Rodriguez's part is a little stronger. Um, yeah, so moving on to number nine, which again also has a 56 while Four Rooms has an uh, 14, 18, it has a some percentage in the teens from Rotten Tomatoes, really low. And uh, but Flight of the Navigator 
which also has a 56, has an 82 on Rotten Tomatoes, like insanely high. <clears throat> I was shocked when I, I looked this up after I'd seen the movie to see just how high the Rotten Tomatoes score on this movie was. And, you know, granted, I am watching it many, many years after the fact. And you, you can't, you know, it's been out, it's been really, it was released 30 years ago. So I don't know how many of those reviews are recent or how many of them are from much closer to the 80s. But I gotta think that they were closer. Or if they weren't, they are very nostalgia based. Because this movie is just. I mean, it's pure nostalgia for people from this time, who grew up around this time, who watched this as a kid. I didn't. I don't have any of that lingering nostalgia. But I can recognize that that's the kind of emotion it's trying to elicit. It's a, an adventure film that has a really interesting sci-fi time travel twist to it. It features uh, the voice of Paul Rubens, which is fun. He has a very young Sarah Jessica Parker in a, in a very off role from, for what she's used to and what you kind of expect from her. And, you know, it's just... It's, an, it's a nice movie. It's, it doesn't do anything particularly fantastic. It doesn't try to knock your socks off, in my opinion. But it doesn't make any egregious errors. It actually plays really well with the time travel element. And it doesn't... It doesn't reach for much, but it definitely grabs what it's trying to grab. If that makes sense. You know, I I was pleased. You know, I was content while watching it. I didn't get bored. I wasn't frustrated with it or wishing more was happening. I just, it, it was nice. It was just a very easy, content movie to, to experience. You know, this is, this is a film from uh, Zach of the Cinerealist Top 200. Uh, it's very high up on his list. One of his favorite films, which... I understand because, you know, he is older than me, and uh, so he, he was kind of, you know, he got to see this much, much closer to when it was released, and, you know, that's kind of important when you've got a movie like this, you know, I would compare this to something more along, for myself, it would be more like, uh, I don't know, maybe a movie like Blank Check, even though that was... It came out a little before, you know, that came out in 94, but I remember watching it when I was, you know, sick at home from school. We would rent it from the library. Or a movie like The Parent Trap with the Lindsay Lohans. <laughs> the Lindsay Lohans. But I mean, I guess that's accurate. You know, so, you know, if it was about, it's a movie that came out about 10 years too early for me to fully experience the way it was supposed to be experienced as a kid. But overall, it still impressed me with how much I didn't find it trivial. Number eight, uh, the first of two Spielberg films to make the top 10. 
and the last film below the 60 rating is Duel with a 58. And Duel is effectively Spielberg's first feature film. And it's very minimal, minimalistic. Uh, but every once in a while, it veers away from the main focus of the story. And the story is essentially this this uh, businessman is driving through the desert and this huge, huge tanker truck, you know, starts to mess with him. And that's it. That's the story, you know. And it's just a series of events where this guy is trying to either evade the truck or get away from the truck or stop the truck or find help or what have you, and he's being foiled and, you know, blocked off and put into compromising situations at every turn. And the all of the scenes that take place on the road I found really intense, really enjoyable, but there are a lot of times where this mo- movie kind of takes a break and, you you know, you've got a moment where he's at the diner and... He's just, you just hear his inner monologue running over and over again as he's trying to think, like, who is this? Who's in the truck? What did I do to get this guy after me? Why would he do this? I don't understand. Like, how can I get out of this situation? And he's looking around at the other patrons and he's thinking, like, oh, is it that guy? I bet it's that guy. And it's like he's making eye contact with this one person. He's like, oh, he's watching me. It's probably him. He's probably waiting for me to get back to my car so he can come chase me again. Things like that. And, you know, like, that's, ugh, it's just, those scenes really pull you out of the story, and, you know, like, oh, just get back in the car, like, let's see the, what's, like, what's really going on here, you know, we're not gonna find the answers in this diner ten minutes into the movie, we're gonna find out the answers an hour or so into the movie while you're on the friggin' road, man, so, while I think that, Young Spielberg's direction was just a little uneven. The moment, the scenes where they're on the road and the car is being chased by the truck are just, ah, really intense, really amped up. A lot of tension going on. So, solid film, solid film. Number seven, and the other Spielberg film to make the top ten, is Amistad with a 63, so we're into the positive film rated territory, and uh, Amistad was pretty, you know, it completely threw me for a loop what the film was actually about, you know, I I truly expected it to be more of a, uh, you know, personal film that followed uh, Jim and Hounds' character, like, on his own quest, on his own journey, on his own narrative, on his own story, and while the film does focus on his character's story, it does it through the lens of Matthew McConaughey and a legal battle, which I was completely not prepared for in any sense. I'm, you know, I just, I'm just sitting here and I'm like, you know, they have the, they they take over the ship within like the first 10 minutes of the movie, and... I'm just like, well, what's next? Where do you go from here? And little did I know that this two and a half hour movie is actually just 
a courtroom drama <laughs> with like an action scene in the beginning, which is weird. But that's the kind of thing that, like, that's the kind of movie I would have expected from Spielberg now. And so this is kind of the precursor to films like Lincoln, uh, Bridge of Spies, and, you know, and like things like that. So as as good, you know, the courtroom drama is fine. Uh, it's never really that outstanding, and it always feels too perfect to actually have been real in any sense. And so that kind of bothers me, uh, particularly Anthony Hopkins' speech toward the end, uh, his closing statement, I believe it was. You know, that was all completely ridiculous. Uh, you know, it sounds nice, but it doesn't sound authentic or real in any way. So that was mildly frustrating. But the film as a whole is good. You've got a lot of good performances. You've got Matthew McConaughey before he started doing rom-coms. You've got Jimin Hounsou, who's really underrated as an actor. Like, he's fantastic in this. I really liked him. Uh, you know, so... It's not great. I, I wouldn't ever put it in, like, the top ten Spielberg canon. Uh, you know, there's a, a lot of films that Spielberg has made that exceed this, the level of Amistad. But for what it is, it's a very solid quality movie from Spielberg well into his prime, you know, well into doing his best stuff. And while this isn't part of that echelon, it's it's not so bad. It, it doesn't fall so far that it's not instantly recognizable as coming from a very high-quality director. Number six is Wuthering Heights, which got a 73. So a little bit of a jump, uh, 10 points up from Amistad. Uh, Wuthering Heights. And, you know, when I started watching the film, I was initially a little turned off. I thought it was very rigid. It felt a little hokey and and very, uh, you know, high school book-ish, which is what the task is based on. And I, I, I don't know, you know, it's tough when you get a, mo a movie based on a classic book like this. You know, just last month, uh, I watched The Scarlet Letter. And that was really, really bad. And so I was starting to get those same sort of vibes from Wuthering Heights. Uh, however, Laurence Olivier is, is not Gary Oldman. And he can actually, he really lifted, you know, the first act for me enough to a point where when the second act hit and, and things really started to pick up steam and, you know, you got this passion between, uh, you know, um, oh, passion between Olivier and Oberon that man, it, it really gets you. You feel it. You can see the care and devotion and love in their eyes. You know, they're such great actors. And that only f serves to reinforce the, the third act when, you know, finally, Olivier's character really makes it and, and becomes a, a wealthy man, a, an aristocrat, essentially. And you've got these... Uh, 
two people in love that started in very different standings in life but have become equals more or less and yet all everyone can see is their beginning and that's that's a tough thing to overcome you know like i've definitely experienced that to some degree uh you know not that i've really changed class since since my birth but I, i i can i can sympathize with and empathize with, uh, you know, having something from your childhood or or from your origin, uh, kind of lingering with you despite distancing yourself from it. Uh, you know, it's 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 a tough thing to move past. It's a tough thing to to reconcile. And uh, I, I think the film does it. You know, William William Wyler does a really deft job at directing this movie. And making that that idea come off as organic, and you know, despite how unfair and unjust a lot of the moments and characters are, particularly in relation to uh, Olivier, there's enough of a there's there's enough of um of a touch from Weiler and and just the way that. You know, he he directed the actors and shot the scenes and the angles that he gives and, uh, you know, a lot of the cues and you can see it on on the faces, particularly Olivier's, just how how real these people are for the time, you know, know, this is during the early 19th century, the early 1800s, and this is how it was then. And it would be difficult for someone like Heathcliff to really reinvent himself and not only reinvent himself but get everyone else to believe that he had reinvented himself that is the most difficult aspect of it i believe so it it started out slow but it really won me over as the film progressed top five and number five is batman the dark knight returns part one you know, now I watched part one and two together, uh, but this part one is the movie that specifically satisfies the request or, or the the task, and so that's only the that's the only part that qualifies for the superlatives in the top ten, and it has a seventy four, just one point ahead of Wuthering Heights, and you know it's part of the DC animated universe. I've now seen. You know, if you count parts one and two as separate films, I've now seen 16 uh, DC animated universe films. And Dark Knight Returns is one of the better ones. It, you know, it reinvents Batman's character. He's much older now. And he's been away from the system, away from Batman as, you know, he's been Bruce Wayne for, you know, some like 10 years, I think. And things have not been well you know a lot of the arguments that people make against comic book movies in general is that you know how good are these superheroes really when they spend literally every waking moment fighting supervillains you know they're you know every you know you can put out a hundred batman movies and he's always fighting somebody you know when is gotham ever safe like that's the idea is to make people safe to make the city safe to save people from things and yet 
they're constantly just fighting. You know, you've got all these Marvel movies. We're getting two or three a year now. And it's like New York is always on the brink of destruction. The world is always on the brink of destruction. What good is really coming from all of this? And The Dark Knight Returns, while it doesn't give a direct answer to that, it shows the opposite. So it shows what happens when you remove Batman. And whether or not the same would be true if you just if Batman had never even happened in the first place, uh, you know, without him, Gotham is is awful, is not a good place, and it it spirals downward quick. And you know, there's a rising gang that's kind of taking over the city and controlling it, and 55 year old Bruce Wayne has to don the cape and cowl has to get back on the street and show him what's up. And Jay Oliva directs this movie, and I thought it was just a really good interpretation of the character, a really strong entry and entrance into the into the uh, chronology of, of the DC animated universe. My biggest gripe, and I think the probably what detracts the most from the film, is the voice acting. I you know, I've watched a little bit of the animated series. I love the voice acting on that. The voice acting here is, is shaky a lot, and it's very wooden. You, you get a, you know, you can, you know, Peter Weller is fine, but he is no, oh crap, I'm going to forget his name. Oh man, uh, I, um, shit, I have to look this up. I can't believe I forgot his name. Um, da, 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 da. <sighs> Kevin Conroy. Kevin Conroy. Kevin Conroy. Kevin Conroy. I'm sorry. <laughs> He's <it get> Peter <laughs> Weller is no Kevin Conroy. Jeez, I should have. I should not have forgotten that. And it just—it's very difficult to buy into the film when so much of it is. It, it just, you know, it's tough for any actor, voice actor, to, to make a character, an animated character feel real and feel alive and lived in. And no one in this movie is really getting that job done. I think that the closest anyone comes is Michael Emerson, and he has like three lines for the Joker, who is a much bigger role in part two. You know, in part one, he's like in the insane inside. He's in Arkham Asylum the entire time, and it's a shame. He he. I think if he had been in more scenes opposite of other one, other people, it might have helped them sort of come alive more. And I think it does in the second part, but in this part, the voice acting is just is it's not good. It's not good. Number four. Morning Glory. Morning Glory has a 76 uh, and stars the impeccable Catherine Hepburn, uh, as well as Douglas Fairbanks Jr., C. Aubrey Smith, and Adolph Menju. I'm probably pronouncing that right. Or wrong, <laughs> I mean. Uh, you know, this is only Hepburn's third film, and she won Best Actress for it. 
and I get it. I totally get it. It is a film that is completely, um, it, it completely revolves around her performance, and she delivers hand over fist. It's very impressive. I was just kind of awe, awestruck by you know her Shakespeare monologues. Man, what a perfect delivery! What an incredible character she is and you know the film around her kind of just falls apart because she stands alone as the best thing about this movie you know it's very short it's only 74 minutes and i i wouldn't you know i don't think you should you know if you watch it you're not watching it for the plot you know it's the plot is bare bones at best it's you know katherine hepburn plays uh an aspiring actress who just kind of wants a role and wants to be a star and will do whatever it takes to be a star. You know, she'll take pay cuts. She'll audition over and over again. And, you know, she talks about uh, everything that she can. And, you know, we'll talk to anybody she can, you know, just trying to get a spot in the, or a a place in the spotlight. And that's it. That's, That's all it is. And... You know, ultimately, she does get her big break. And just the, the her, you know, it's a kind of a mix between neurosis and um, just kind of perpetual, outgoing projection. Ah, that does, that's not really a thing. I don't know. But she's, she's very outgoing. She's very loud and boisterous. And fantastic she's she's magnetic you can't take your eyes off of her she owns the screen she owns the stage and i loved her performance in this you know very 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 good uh number three featuring another fantastic lead female performance is ninochka uh, starring Greta Garbo, uh, as well as Melvin da- Douglas, Ina Claire, Melvin Douglas, Ina Claire, Sig Ruman, and uh, Bella Lugosi. It's uh, another 1939 film, uh, along with uh, Wuthering Heights, and. You know, the much, much more of a, you know, I like the plot, you know, a stern Russian, here's the letterbox plot. A stern Russian woman sent to Paris on official business finds herself attracted to a man who represents everything she is supposed to detest. And that's fair. Uh, Melvin Douglas plays the male lead. He is just kind of this suave uh, Parisian aristocratic man, I guess you would you would call him. And, you know, enter Greta Garbo, who is, you know, very much a part of the Russian machine, who is very rigid and strict and robotic from the opening jump. And it is, you know, the film was marketed as Greta Garbo laughs. That's the tagline. Greta Garbo laughs. And you see the the opening of the film, you're like, you would think, no way. This char- how could this character ever laugh? And then there's this scene 
where she and Melvin Douglas's character are, I want to say at lunch, it might have been dinner, they're out to eat somewhere, and he, he keeps trying to tell her a joke, keeps trying to get her to laugh, and you know, he'll tell the joke, and he'll say, and she won't laugh, and he'll say, well, did you get it? Did you understand the joke? Because it's funny, and you hear people at the next table over laughing at the joke he's telling, and she just kind of deadpans like, yes, I heard it. It was not, yeah, she's like, it was not funny. <laughs> And it's such a cute movie. It's very charming. You're immediately drawn to their relationship and the burgeoning affection between the two characters. And Douglas, you know, gets is getting frustrated. He's upset. You know, he's just trying to get her to smile even. And it's not working. None of it is working. And uh, as, as exasperated as he is, in he finally ends up uh, falling out of his chair in you know as he's kind of mucking about and and Garbo erupts in laughter oh my goodness and it's taken so long it's been so long since Douglas started trying to get her to laugh that he can't even appreciate that he he, he succeeded you know all he can see is like well what what was so funny about that why all I did was fall out of a chair. Oh, it was such a beautiful scene. I I, I really enjoy it quite a bit. But, ah, oh man. It's, it's... You know, it's kind of... Th- this is almost like uh, Morning Glory, but with a better plot, essentially. You know, uh, Garbo, you know, being a Russian woman and being sent to Paris and the whole... Nazi World War Two, etc. thing, and then you've got the representation of Russia and how it's impacting the country. The you know she she goes to Paris to find these businessmen who are supposed to be there, you know, getting. Uh, uh, I think I think they're supposed to be there to iron out a trade deal and it's taking too long or they're getting bad rates or whatever what have you and so Garbo shows up to kind of whip him back into shape and like you know you know this is for all the comrades back at home and and oh it was it's a really fun movie and you know once she sort of breaks once her shell cracks it's just done she just becomes this gooey mess of a woman and not in a bad way, you know, you, you still, you can feel the power inside of her that you could see earlier on, but now you feel like she's let down her guard, she's being herself, she's being her, her real self, and that's a beautiful thing, and I, I really do think that that's, it's a great film. Number two, and again, we're going to jump 10 points up to a 95, so Ninochka had an 85, very high rating, <clears throat> OJ, Made in America, 95, this is an 8 hour documentary, I just did a review episode for it, and so I won't go into too much detail with it this time, uh, but um, I just want to say that I love this film to death, it is just pure intrigue 
every single piece of information that you're given feels impossible. You're get, you know, you've got this man and his life story is so fascinating. The the heights that he reaches uh, as a famous human being then plummets, but then reaches a second time except as an infamous human being are it's staggering. You know, it's not it's like two different people inhabiting the same body. And yet when you watch this documentary, you can see that it is the same person. All these people telling you about who he was and how he lived and what transpired and what happened and why things happened and the social and racial climate during this time. It's truly, truly one of the greatest documentaries ever made and a truly fantastic film. I, I absolutely, absolutely love it. And that, and it's number two. And, you know, I think most months that would have been the best film of the month. And yet, there was one film that beat it out with uh, a 98. So that makes the top 100. This is a new entry in the top 100 from of my personal films. And that is Sunset Boulevard. This is a cinematic masterpiece, a classic film, uh, but one that I'd never seen before, and one that I, I've, you know, I've seen the final ending, the ending scene before. Uh, you know, I'm ready for my close-up. It's beautiful, and you know, I, I wrote in my review that upon reflection, after watching it, I was a little lukewarm. You know, I was like, oh, that's pretty good. But I, I didn't, I wasn't amazed. I wasn't marveling at it. I, I found it to be rudimentary. And, and that seems almost impossible at this point. But I, I went back, I was, you know, I was kind of simultaneously reading through the Wikipedia page for the film and, and looking through, like, the influences that it had going forward on the film industry and whatnot and you know just trying to understand you know because at the time I was like well this why is this so well reviewed why do people like this so much and as I sort of began to understand it better and learn more about it my opinion sort of changed you know I'm going back I'm re-watching various scenes I'm sort of looking at things through a different scope and lens and I'm kind of seeing things with this historical context. And all of a sudden, it hits me. It's, it's beginning to make sense. It's beginning to really affect me the way, in a way that it didn't at first. And, you know, the, the main trio, you know, Nancy Olsen, Gloria Swanson, William Holden are incredible. They're very, they're just great in their roles. And just the the idea, the disillusioned uh, uh, star who has completely faded from the scene, uh, you know, wants her comeback. And, and in a way, this kind of parallels with OJ. You know, he became so famous, he latched onto that fame and kind of did anything he could to keep that ball rolling. Whereas in Sunset Boulevard 
uh, you've got um, this aging film actress uh, who was a silent film star who can't hold on to her fame and she's watched it slip away from her over the years and wants it back worse than anything imaginable. And I think that, you know, this film was made in 1950, and I, I get the sense that that's kind of what the atmosphere and climate was like back then. That if you weren't actively continuing to perpetrate this image, that whatever image you'd built for yourself, it probably felt like it was slipping away. You know, back then there was no social media, there was no Twitter, there was no Facebook, there... You know, you couldn't just upload a YouTube video every couple of days from behind the scenes on something or other. You couldn't just send out a tweet, you know, saying hi to your fans. There was no, you know, you weren't doing interviews and uh, guest spots and recordings. You weren't hosting SNL on the weekend. You weren't doing late night TV shows twice a week, every week to promote your new film and TV show and all these things and you know you weren't in commercials as much you weren't the it was just such a completely different time for people in that realm of of recognition and this film speaks to that climate and i it took me a while to figure that out i was blunted by from it at first uh but i i think but I do feel now that I, I really, I truly appreciate this film. Um, it's, I think I, I like OJ Made in America a little bit more than this. But I think that this is a, a better made film, a, a better directed film, uh, a better realized film. That um, it, it's not as sprawling. You know, it's a much shorter film. It doesn't even hit two hours. And it's very contained and just does exactly what it needs to do to create a beautiful story and have a beautiful and thought-provoking social commentary as well. So that's the top ten with Sunset Boulevard taking the number one spot. And, and now, let us move into the superlatives. Um, you know, the order's a little bit of a different order than it was last month. Uh, I've rearranged things. If you've checked the website, uh, circleoffilm.com, there is a page devoted to Scavenger Hunt uh, Awards, where you can see the 10 categories, including number one film of the month. And after this episode goes up, on the 31st of December, you will be able to see how the films that won this month's awards stack up against last month's winners, and so on and so forth. Uh, so, first up, biggest surprise. And this was tough, because for the most part, the films that I thought were going to be good ended up being good. The films that I thought were going to be bad ended up being bad. And... More films trended downward rather than upward. And so I toyed with the idea of making The Biggest Surprise a film that was much, much more, much worse than what I expected it to be. But I have a category for that, and that's Biggest Disappointment. So ultimately, I chose Wuthering Heights. 
you know, it got a 73. And the reason that it cat it's my biggest surprise is because 25, 30 minutes into this film, I thought it was going to be just dog shit. I thought it was going to be really bad. And then all of a sudden, it picks up all this steam. It, it rises above its kind of bare bones, bricklaying first act, and sort of becomes this completely new film that is filled with energy, filled with exuberance, filled with emotion. And I just, I you know, you know, for 30 minutes, I was kind of like, I kept getting distracted. I wasn't really interested in the film. And then all of a sudden, I couldn't take my eyes away. I was hooked. And, you know, I as soon as the film was over, I was like, wow, I don't know how it did that. You know, and I think a big part of it is uh, Oberon and Olivier's acting. I think that's what really sells it for me. Uh, and as I just previously mentioned, biggest disappointment is the next category. And this one, you know, I've I, like I mentioned, there are a ton of films that were just awful from this month's catalog, but one that wasn't awful, but was just very upsetting that it was so as bad as it was, and thereby became the big winner of the biggest disappointment award is Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Now, I gave this a 37, which isn't awful. It's only bad. But, man, I went into this fully expecting that even if it wasn't great, I'd enjoy it. And I didn't really enjoy it at all. You know, it, it, didn't, it didn't feel like it meshed the two genres very well. It was it, it, at times it felt like it didn't just like incorporate one genre into the other it felt like one was stepping aside to let the other take over for a sequence of time you know i want to see zombies included in my pride and prejudice and vice versa rather than zombies on top you know first pride and prejudice then some zombies then some more pride and prejudice then some more zombies and it just it didn't achieve that on any level and uh, the the biggest benefit for the film was Lily James' performance. You know, she I think she's good in her her lead role, but I was very disappointed. Uh, which moves us into worst film. So Sunset Boulevard had a ninety eight was the best film, and I did mention there were four films, five five films with a sub ten rating. You know, there's a couple sixes, there's a five, there's an eight. But the worst film with a one, a one point out of a hundred, is Term Life, starring Vince Vaughn and Haley Steinfeld. Man, it's based on a comic book, and it's trash. It is absolute garbage. It's not so bad it's good. It is not you know, just like trashy humor or ridiculousness that you can enjoy for the sake of itself. It doesn't have big action set pieces like a Transformers movie. It doesn't have good acting despite being bad. It's not like it's just poorly written. It's just, it's a culmination of awfulness that all kind of stems from casting Vince Vaughn in the lead role. 
That is the biggest issue. Because Haley Steinfeld could totally make this movie work if Vince Vaughn wasn't the main character. And then it just gets progressively worse when you see all these other big names as part of the film. And yet none of them can do a damn thing to help. You've got you've got Jonathan Banks from uh, uh, Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. You've got Bill Paxton. You've got uh, Taraji P. Henson, who seems to be on track for a Best Actress nomination this year. And this movie came out this year. Terrence Howard, uh, who won an Academy Award, if I recall correctly, from Hustle and Flow. John Favreau, who directed The Jungle Book this year. Shea Wiggum, Mike Epps, and I just can't possibly understand it. Vince Vaughn. Vince fucking Vaughn. <sighs> Sigh. Okay. Next we have, let's move into some positive categories. Funniest film. This was uh, a much easier category last month because... Some of the films last month were quite hilarious. And I don't think any of the films this month reach, are even in contention, or would have even would have even been in contention last month uh, for a town called Panic, which crushed this category. But you know, it was this was actually kind of a close race uh, between Ninochka and Four Rooms. Uh, you know, they're both neither. You know, Four Rooms is more of a comedy, and Ninochka is more of a romance. But it has quite a few elements of comedy thrown in there. And it went, I went back and forth on these for a while. But I decided ultimately that the funniest film was Four Rooms. And the reason being that as funny as Ninochka is, when it's not, when it's embracing more of its romance side, it isn't funny anymore. And it's just romantic. Whereas when Four Rooms is during the first two sequences, which are weaker than the second two, it's still funny, and even the bad parts are kind of funny inherently, just because of, like, the absurdity of these scenarios that this bellhop finds himself in. And, you know, I definitely laughed out loud quite a few times. Uh, you know, Tarantino's dialogue is on point, and, I mean, I guess I don't have to... Uh, tiptoe around spoilers that much but the dead woman in the bed in the third sequence was hilarious and not because dead people are funny but because of the scenario and the situation and you've got these kids trying to tell someone that there's a dead woman in their bed and the guy's just like doesn't believe them doesn't believe them and then he comes up to the room and doesn't believe them. And then he's like, oh, it just, it, it's really funny. And it's a comedy of errors and hijinks. But it's still a very weak winner for the year. It's a very weak category for the month. Winner for the year. Winner for the month. Um, and then another weak category this month. Most powerful film. Uh, previously won by uh, Do the Right Thing from Spike Lee. And he did have another film from me that, for me to watch this month in Jungle Fever, but that did not end up very, very strongly. And instead, kind of by default as the only powerful film, is Amistad. And like I said, I, I find that a lot of the 
dialogue and particularly courtroom scenes are very ham-fisted and polished dialogue that even if someone had you know even if you're we're assuming that McConaughey and Hopkins wrote these things down memorized these scripts or the, these speeches you know they're just they're just so perfectly written that it's really difficult to stay in the moment with them but the story is a very empowering one it's a very touching story uh, and you really feel disheartened as it continues and not only do they have to win one court battle but they have to win another court battle and they have to win another court battle just to get the satisfaction and uh, understanding of what happened that they were imprisoned on this ship killed the people that they were being imprisoned by and now they're being arrested it's just it's a very affecting film Spielberg does a great job of really playing on those emotions and that's why it's the most powerful film of the month Amistad most forgettable film uh, this is an easy category to pick out simply because I scroll down the list of films and it's pretty much the film that I look at and say, wait, I watched that this month? Uh, and this month, that film was Youngblood, which got a 22. So not the worst rating by far. But it just, it left no imprint. It's a hockey movie starring Rob Lowe with a brief cameo from Keanu Reeves. You've got Patrick Swayze in it. And yeah, that's it. You know, it starts out pretty generic and could have been a fine sports movie. And then there's like a 20-minute sequence where there's no hockey and it's just Rob Lowe trying to rediscover his love for the game. And it's so boring. I hate it. And But, like, you don't, it doesn't leave a lasting impression on you. You don't feel any connection to the characters. You're not really rooting for them to win other than for the fact that this is a movie and he's the main character. You know, when the main message of the movie is that you need that fighting solves your problems, you probably it's probably not good, not great. Most entertaining film. Now, this is a tough one because even though this is a very positive category, it doesn't necessarily have to be a great film to be the most entertaining film. And it certainly is not this month, because this month's most entertaining film is also the second worst rated one, and that is Bling, with a rating of 4. This is an animated film that came out this year, uh, and it satisfied the Tom Green category. And it is just absolutely ridiculous. I, I don't understand how this got made or what it's doing being made, who paid for it, why any of these people are in it, because it's got names, Jeanette McCurdy, Carla Gugino, Tom Green, John Heater, James Woods, Taylor Kitsch, uh, you know, like, what, what are these people doing in this movie, you know, I asked the same question from Term Life, this is why these movies are so bad, because you have all these big names that can contribute, and have contributed to great films in the past, just utterly taking a dump all over the screen you know James Woods was the only actor that I felt was really into this role 
and into this movie. He's the only one who knew what kind of a movie he was in. But unlike Term Life, Bling at least was absolutely entertaining for what it was. It is so silly and so absurd that you can't help but you know be invested in it. You can't help but really get behind what's happening and feel a part of the film. It's it's just that crazy. And so it's like it or not, it is the most entertaining film of December. And now we have best performance. Uh, best performance. This went to Daniel Radcliffe for Swiss Army Man last month. This month was an incredibly tight race between uh, Catherine Hepburn and Greta Garbo. You know, I I was I was going either way depending on what second you asked me, even and. I think what ultimately sold me was that not only, you know, both females are perfect in their roles, perfect in their films, and the center of the films that they are in. And where Katherine Hepburn is literally the only thing keeping her film afloat because the plot around her is so non-existent, Garbo carries her film on top of a plot and not only boosts the film and carries it, but in, but, but furthers the plot and, and really propels the plot through her role. So, unfortunately, it is because of the poor writing of the plot and, and screenplay that Catherine Hepburn misses out on this one, and Greta Garbo for Ninochka is my best performance. I thought she was fantastic, and her, you know, you totally believe her cold, hard shell of a demeanor in the first part of the movie, and most films would, most actors would be, it would be very difficult to buy the transition that she makes halfway through, and yet Garbo does it seamlessly. It is perfect. It's, there's a, it's the perfect moment when Melvin Douglas falls over his chair that she starts laughing. It is the perfect, perfect, perfect sequence. Best direction. Again, this is another really close one. A lot of very close, close battles in this month's superlatives. Uh, you know, I was... It was basically coming down to Sunset Boulevard and OJ Made in America. Those two were heads and shoulders above the rest of the competition in terms of quality. And at the end of the day, I think I had I, I had to go with Billy Wilder. As much as I love OJ Made in America and how impressive it is that uh, Ezra Edelman was able to construct this huge, huge narrative and make it mostly cohesive... You can see mo there are definitely parts where he loses track of the main story and the main tie-ins to the main story. He he does he he walks such a fine line between OJ and race and the climate of the of the country, but every once in a while, uh, particularly the final sequence of the uh, 
memorabilia and awards theft. Like that sequence was really jarring and did not really mesh with the rest of the film. And Billy Wilder, so tight. There's no str misplaced strand of hair in this movie. He gets the great best performances from his actors, something that Edelman did not have to worry about. He just kind of elevates everything about the film from just being a simple how did I get to this position opening flashback to the subsequent uh, scene at the end of the film where you see uh, the aging actress descend down the stairs under the guy uh, believing to be in a shoot and asking for her close up it is one of the best films and Billy Wilder directs the hell out of it. Uh, so, uh, having previously gone to uh, Spike Lee for Do the Right Thing, Best Direction this time goes to Billy Wilder for Sunset Boulevard. And finally, lastly, is Best Scene. I've already mentioned it not very long ago. It's come up twice already in this episode. And it's only fitting that third time is the charm, and that's the Ninochka uh, laughter scene from Greta Garbo. You know, that's that's how you know what the best scene is when it's when it comes up again and again and again. When it's the first thing you point to to describe a film. Uh, you know, it's it's the moment I think about when I think of Ninochka, and between and you know Melvin Douglas and. And Garbo act the hell out of that scene, and they're just perfect together, playing off one of an, one of one another. So charming, so charismatic, great chemistry, and just a beautiful scene all around. I I truly truly enjoy it. And uh, that's it. That is the those are the superlatives. That's the top ten. I'll run down them top to bottom again. Sunset Boulevard. O.J. Made in America, Ninochka, Morning Glory, Batman the Dark Knight Returns Part 1, Wuthering Heights, Amistad, Duel, Flight of the Navigator, and Four Rooms. And uh, uh, I think last month's superlatives, I think two, so two things went to Swiss Army Man and two things went to Do the Right Thing. This month we've got, uh, let, me, let me look here. This month we've got two awards for Ninochka, and everything else got one. So, you know this, you know it's it's pretty varied. I fully expect at some some month to find a film to get take away three, maybe even four things. Uh, and like I said, Nightmare Before Christmas would have been funniest film, most powerful film, most entertaining. It would have been best performance. Uh, from, oh, uh, ta, ta, ta. oh, I, I can see her name. I'm gonna have to look it up. Shit. From uh, the character who plays Sally, uh, Catherine O'Hara, as Sally. I think she's the best. You know, it would go to. It, you know, I wish I could put it, give it to Danny Elfman, for Jack. Jack's singing voice alone, but the fact that Jack's Jack's character is sung from Elfman and spoken from Chris Sarandon. 
kind of hurts his ability to win that award. But I think Catherine Hara still knocks it out of the park and I think is better than Garbo, honestly. Uh, Henry Selleck would have won Best Direction. And Best Scene, hands down, uh, would have been the Jack's Lament scene from Nightmare Before Christmas. My, my favorite song from that movie. And it truly gets to the heart of just what the movie's about. You know, it's about complacency and splendor and, you know, the desire to, you know, to you know, never being satisfied. You know, you can do the same thing perfectly for years and all of a sudden it's, it's just boring. And that's what happens. And Jack wants more out of life. And I just think it's so beautiful. So beautiful. Unbelievable. But uh, I'm recording this on Christmas. You're getting this episode on New Year's Eve. Happy New Year. Uh, enjoy 2017 and everything it has to offer you. I certainly will. I am incredibly excited for it. I'm looking forward to a great year in film. Uh, you know, a lot of people have said that 2016 was kind of down for this year uh, looking at my film spreadsheet at this moment based on the films I've seen through December 25th and there are still a, a couple I haven't seen yet that have a chance of, of denting the my top 20 I guess uh, you know and, and ones that I probably won't be able to see until January I'm assuming uh, you know, I will say that this year is a little down by comparison. And particularly when you look at uh, films like, you know, like just looking at the average film rating for this year so far, for me, it's at a 53, roughly. And that's, a, that's not bad. It's definitely... Continuing a trend downward that's kind of started in the last few years. But the other telling thing is that the highest rated film to this point is a 97. And the last... Um, what is it? The last uh, eight, eight years prior to this, the best film was at least a 98. You would have to go back to 2007... Where the highest rated film from me that I've seen that I'd seen uh, only got a 95, you know, because after that the best films by year are The Dark Knight 100, District 9 98, Social Network 99, A Separation 99, Looper 99, Short Term 12 99, Boyhood 99, Mad Max Fury Road 100, you know, and now you and currently it's The Handmaiden 97, so we'll see it, it's tough it, you know there's still a couple and you know I've got a lot of foreign films to watch yet uh, a lot of short films that I'm sure I haven't seen coming up for the Oscars uh, so um, yeah this episode is already quite long I'm not gonna you know I'll do another episode to be released in January about uh, in, in regards to the kind of 2016 year in review and how that's going to work, and what I've planned for that. So, thank you for listening. 
find any information you'd like at the website, including the Scavenger Hunt Awards page, uh, which will rank uh, the superlative uh, re recipients on a monthly basis, and or email me at circleoffilm.com. And as always, have a week. And have a year. So long,